0: chapter 6, verse 71, as Jesus puts a bookend on his uh, Bread of Life discourse. we okay? Okay. So Jesus puts a bookend on his Bread of Life discourse, all of chapter 6, has been him calling himself the bread of life. It's been this, this argument um, for the fact that he is sufficient and he alone is sufficient for eternal life. Uh, keeping in mind that so many people had followed him up to this point for what he could do for them rather than who he was or what he could do for them temporarily versus what he could do for them eternally. That was not the interest of many or most of the crowd that had followed him. And nothing's really changed here, as we'll see, as we get into this text. So John chapter 6, 52 through 71. Here's my objectives today. So I've listed three objectives, and you can just listen for those as we walk through this text. The first objective is to understand the rationale behind the seemingly strange words Jesus chose to use during his Bread of Life discourse. He tells them, eat my flesh, drink my blood. If that's not strange language, I don't know what is. So I think it's important to really understand that. What is the impetus or what is it that Jesus is wanting us to understand there? The second objective is to show how, despite Jesus having the words of eternal life, many still walked away. And thirdly, the objective is to celebrate our glorious Christ and his provisions for the saints. So let's get into the text, John chapter 6, starting in verse 52, the Jews... Then disputed, disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus has been teaching, I'm the bread of life. He's made some pretty bold statements, one of the I am statements, I am the bread of life. This is directly connected to his deity, and this is a bold statement, not so bold for Christ, but would definitely be bold for anybody who's not actually the bread of life that's actually been sent from heaven, that is actually a bread that you wouldn't die from, like he mentions the fathers received in the Exodus. So the Jews were disputing among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? This shouldn't be strange to us that they have these questions, because we've seen it over and over again. Woman at the well, give me this water. When Jesus is speaking metaphorically, she doesn't get it. He's saying, I'm the water for you, and she misses it. He's saying, I'm the bread for you, and they miss it. Jesus tells Nicodemus again, you must be born again. How can you go into your mother's womb a second time? So again, this pattern of a natural mind set on natural things, and nothing has changed. So they start disputing because of their natural mind set on these natural things. Jesus has been teaching in the synagogue, so maybe he's standing before regular people and some educated people. So there's disputing among the Jews, how can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, unless you eat unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life. And I will and he says, you will have uh, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. That's the second time he said he'll raise somebody up on the last day. That's John 6:44 and now John 6:54, for my flesh, 55 is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my, of my blood abides in me, and I abide in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. So I'm not taking the side with these doubters, but I do agree that this is strange language. This is strange language. Is this the way that you talk to your peers? When you're evangelizing somebody, do you say, hey, you have to chew on the flesh of Christ. You have to drink his blood. Do you say that? We don't speak that way, do we? Jesus spoke this way, and he spoke this way for a very specific reason. But Before we get into those reasons, I want to just say that this is a popular go-to passage for the doctrine known as transubstantiation. If you don't know what that means? That is a view held by Catholics for sure, among others. That when they take communion, when they take the elements of the Eucharist, of the communion, that they believe the bread is literally the body of Christ. And that the wine is literally the blood of Christ. They believe it literally does that. They can't taste it in drink or, in, or in, 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 in the eating of the bread. They can't necessarily taste that it's flesh or taste that it's blood. And I haven't asked a lot of qu- Catholics these questions about what their experience is. But that's what they believe, and that's a go-to passage. But you're going to see that that really is nonsense. There's nothing to substantiate such a claim, let alone taking it to a lab and actually testing the properties of the food and tex- testing the properties of the, you know, uh, 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 of the wine you're going to see in this context what Jesus means. And it leaves us zero room to even consider that transubstantiation could be a possibility, because it can't. Because Jesus has a deeper, weightier meaning than just what we see. But this is also a place that people like to say, your Jesus is cannibalistic. He's promoting the eating of flesh, and there are those that would hold to that. This is what he's saying. And if you just take it at face value, I see where you could land there. Because Jesus does say, eat my flesh. But that's just a cursory reading. That's just a, 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 a very simple approach to the text. Not thinking about any context. Not asking the right questions. It's just a perusal. Well, Jesus said that, so there we go. But this is not exactly what he meant when he said, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. What Jesus is pointing to is the fact that you must have an experience that will remedy you on the inside because there's an internal problem and the only answer to an internal problem is an internal remedy and that's the first point that I want you to see our internal problem must be met with an internal remedy it must be met with an internal remedy this whole chapter is a metaphor the whole flow of thought I should say is a metaphor when Jesus speaks of himself as the bread of life Jesus is not a carbohydrate, right? But he is the bread of life. And he takes this metaphor to its extreme when he says, you must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. I made a joke to my wife. She said, what are you going to preach on today? I said, the gospel according to cannibals and vampires. And she believed me. So what does that say about me and my sermon titles? But that's not at all what we're going to be talking about today. But these strange statements, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And you will have life. And he says, if you eat my my flesh and you drink my blood, you will have life. You will remain in me and I will remain in you. In other words, this statement is one of eternal security when he says these words. When he says, Eat my flesh, drink my blood, and you will remain in me and I will remain in you. Simply put, those who have encountered Jesus through the true gospel and have been truly changed by the true gospel by the living christ by the bread of life he's saying there's a security that takes place those are the ones that are being kept he's arguing here for eternal security just in this word abide you will remain in me interestingly we're at this point just on the heels of talking about the joshua harris episode interestingly we're here after we talk about first john where john says they went away from us because they were never of us. And it could just as well say they went away from us because they never partook in the bread of life. Because those who do, it is a guarantee. There is a surety here. The Bible gives us a surety after a surety. And this is a big deal because we, we claim those, we cling to those, we hold tightly to the promises that were given so that we're not carried away by false wind, by, by false doctrine, by winds and waves, so that we're not kicked off of our pedestal of truth. That we're clinging so very tightly to he says if you eat my flesh and you drink my blood you will abide in me and I will abide in you this statement is one of eternal security to have this bread necessarily means to have life genuine life ensures perseverance it ensures that we will be kept and we will be completed that's what he's offering in this bread that's kind of these introductory statements under point one is he saying to the crowd this is what you need if you have this you will have eternal security. You're not banking on your works. You're not banking on your goodness, but you're banking on something outside of yourself that will sustain you. You see, our internal problem needs some kind of external remedy that's outside of ourself that will be administered internally for us. We are the passive agents here. Jesus already talked about this in the earlier portion of John 6, and he's going to say it again. We are the passive agents. Agents. Do, you not, do you recall when Austin taught and it said that, you know, not everyone, the only people that can come to Jesus are the ones whom God draws? And I don't think Austin got into that word draw when I listened to the sermon. I don't remember. So let me just let, me just let you know what, 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 what's happening here in terms of the passive agent versus the active agent. So these people that are coming to Christ are coming to Christ because God is doing a drawing work. He's doing an effectually drawing type of a thing for them. This word draw is used many times in the New Testament. It's once used for Peter when he drew his sword from the sheath to cut off the ear of the soldier who was with uh, who, who arrested Christ in the garden. It's used when the disciples would draw their net, the word is elko, and they would draw their nets. The net is the passive agent. The sword is the passive agent. There has to be an active agent that applies the action to the sword, that applies the action to the net that's being drawn. We are the passive agent that God draws. We don't come to Christ on our own. We don't have an epiphany one day and say, ooh, I think I want this. We are dead. Deadness means deadness. There's a reason the Bible talks about spiritual deadness. Dead people don't want life. They don't. They don't know that they are without it. And so this same word draw that we use and see in the disciples drawing the net and in Peter drawing his sword is the same exact root word when it says that God is drawing men to Christ and he's raising them up on the last day. God is the active agent, setting his affections on those whom he will, according to his good pleasure, Ephesians 1, and he draws them. He draws them and those whom he draws are the ones who experience the bread of life. And those who experience the bread of life are the ones who have eternal life. Why would Jesus go so far as to say you must eat his flesh and drink his blood? Could he not have said it a simpler way? Could he not have presented that in maybe a little bit more simplistic fashion? I would say Jesus did exactly what was right to do. So why did Jesus go so far as to say you must eat his flesh and drink his blood? Everyone knows what it is to eat and to drink. Everyone knows what it is to be hungry. Everyone knows what it is, you know, to, to well, say, hungry. Maybe not everyone doesn't know what it is to be starving, even though we casually say, man, I'm starving. I'm starving. You know, uh, I'm starving. I weigh 200 pounds. I'm not starving. I promise you. So, so there's, there's, we understand this idea of being hungry. We understand, man, I've got I've to have something to eat. I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I'm parched. We're on the, the, the hills of summer about to enter fall. We understand what it is to need something to drink. But my question to you would be, would it be enough for you when you were hungry or when you were thirsty to look at a glass of water or to look at some freshly baked bread and say, I admire that bread. I'm sure that water would really hit the spot. You look at the bread and you think, man, that's, that smells really nice. I'm admiring it. I will speak highly of this bread i can i can bend it like this and it crackles that's just how fresh it is does that bread do you any good just to admire it absolutely not does the water that's in the cup when you're parched does it do anything by way of quenching your thirst no it doesn't and so jesus uses this language He teases out to the full extent this metaphor so that they can see you need something more than an admiration for me. You need something more than a recognition that I'm good or a recognition that I teach well or that I'm even a prophet. He says, that's not enough for you. And Jesus ups the ante. He says, you need something within you to treat the internal problem that plagues you. And he says, I am that remedy. You must do more than just admire me from the periphery. You must do more than just acknowledge me when you peruse your Bible once a month. You must take me in and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The same same idea when we think of eating literal food and drinking literal drink is the same kind of application here for spiritual life. It's not enough to admire Jesus. It's not enough to even hate him, uh, sorry, hate what the Romans and the Jews did to him. We might look back and say, man, that was just, that was that was sorry of them. How much hatred do you have to have in your heart to scourge and crucify someone? It's not enough. It's not enough to sit down and maybe shed a tear because you hear a song about the old rugged cross and it stirs your emotions. That's not the same as putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the same as eating his flesh and drinking his blood and actually taking in the only remedy that will take care of what ails us this bread must be consumed by each individual one commentary said this our eating and drinking habits are not done by proxy in other words in other words Daniel can't eat for me you know we say this all the time right we say this all the time oh you're not gonna eat that well I'll eat it for you you know that's not the idea Daniel can't be my vicarious eater. Daniel, you were just there, buddy. You know, I just, I just saw you, you. You know, you just popped in my mind. You know, I can't, expect, I can't expect to glean from or receive the nutritional value of what Daniel ingests. It doesn't work that way. And that's obvious because Daniel can't be my vicarious eater. He can't eat for me by proxy. Daniel can't stand before God Almighty by proxy for myself for his wife, for his family, or for anyone. I can't stand before God on your behalf or by proxy. I will give an account for what I did with Jesus. You will give an account of what you did with Jesus. And Jesus is saying this very thing. You must experience me within. You must have that kind of encounter with me because your mama and your daddy's faith is not going to do it for you. Your grandma and your grandpa's faith is not going to do it for you. You have to experience me there is not a there is not a vicarious salvation there is a vicarious substitution there is a vicarious atonement but i cannot be saved on your behalf jesus was substituted on the behalf of all who would believe see the major problem is within therefore the remedy must be administered internally this is consist this is a, there's a consistent theme in the scriptures i'm not just making this up okay Con- consider this. Consider when you hear this language in the scriptures that, that the Lord sent for us a, a helper. The Lord sent for us the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God comes and does what? He indwells the people of God. He indwells those. Indwelling happens where? Within. There has to be an indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to say that you're actually in Christ. This is how this works. And the indwelling of the Spirit happened as a remedy for the sin that separated you from God. That's how the transaction works. It's a part of that remedy, I should say. There's more to it than that. Paul even said, for I'm crucified with Christ, and yet I live, not I, but what Christ lives where? Within me. Why does Christ live within? To remedy the internal illness that we have. The brokenness, the sinfulness, the estrangement from God, the, the dead heartedness. Paul says again in Romans, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And I, I, I deleted about 10 passages from the Bible that talk about what happens inside. So it makes complete sense that Jesus would be arguing, not that it's so important that you literally gnaw on his flesh or literally drink his blood, but that that language is the closest using human language, using almost, I don't know, it probably wouldn't be anthropomorphic. I know that's a big word. Just scratch it from your brain. He's using a language so that you can understand because people get it. You get food, you you don't get closer with food than when you actually eat it. And he's saying, this is the way that you can reconcile being close with me. You have to have me in you to take care of the problem that is within you. To eat his flesh necessarily means that they're had to have been a death. Jesus is pointing towards his death, by the way. If you didn't see that. Because in order for you to eat flesh, there has to be what? A sacrifice. There has to be something that has died. And so Jesus is pointing to his death when he says, you have to eat my flesh. I have to offer myself up to you. My blood has to be shed. My body has to be broken so that you can benefit and have life. He's alluding to his death. They didn't see it. We do. We see it in hindsight. We come back. We see it. It's really absurd to think when considering the full bread of life discord that Christ literally meant eat his flesh and drink his blood. We approach this text and we say, that's, <laughs> that's, that's really nonsense. Who, who, would, who would think that? Keep in mind, these people, natural minds, set on natural things, but they had never heard teaching like this before. And all of a sudden, Jesus is saying these things that are completely turning their world upside down so it's absurd to think these things in our natural we, we, we would, it's hard it's, it's absurd to really embrace this as christians right jesus has compassion for those who are like sheep without a shepherd wandering in darkness exposed to every danger and completely vulnerable without absolute with, with, with absolutely zero defense he suffers he dies and then he conquers death that we might live this is what he's pointing to he's already said He looks at them and has compassion because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Different crowd this time, probably some of the same, but at the synagogue. So a brief application, you can take this idea and you can apply it to the lost, obviously. They need the gospel, simple enough. They need the gospel, they need the bread of life, they need the words of life that Peter speaks of later in the chapter. They need these things in order to live. The lost need the bread of life in order to bring them out of death and into life. The answer to our lostness or to lostness is the bread of life. But interestingly, the same answer to the need for salvation is the answer to the need for sanctification. It's still the bread of life, i.e., it's still the gospel. So the way this applies to you is not that we dismiss it. I have the bread of life. I'm good to go. Jesus has changed me. He's rescued me from darkness, brought me into the kingdom of his beloved Son. But now you need the gospel every day. You need that bread of life. This is why Jesus said and why he used the metaphor of bread. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. You don't go a day, unless you're fasting on purpose, or unless something happens out of your control, you probably don't go a day without eating. You have to do that to sustain your life. And so Jesus being merciful and Jesus being good, he's speaking in a language that they can get. And here it is. I am the bread of life so this applies both to the lost and it applies both to the saved so the way that you would instruct disciple or mentor a fellow believer is to give them the bread of life who has the words of life that's what we need every day there's not some new magical formula that's over here behind the curtain that christians can find it's the same story it's the same message i needed it to find jesus i needed it to have a relationship with jesus and i need it to be sustained by jesus that's how the gospel works in our life because we are being saved so the first point for those of you that are taking notes as a reminder our internal problem must be met with an internal remedy that's what i saw in verses 52 excuse me 52 through verses 59 so the next point that i see is this dead hearts cannot see even the richest of truths dead hearts cannot see even the richest of truths to be clear god must first regenerate man just to back up and to camp out in austin's sermon just a little bit from last week which i think was 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 well done very balanced very good god must first regenerate man replace his heart of stone with a heart of flesh so that that man can see or so that anyone can see This is how this transaction works. You want the logical breakdown. You want the mechanics of these things. How does a dead person all of a sudden come to life? It's because life has to be given. This is where we put back in this word drawing, this, this active work from the active agent that is done unto the passive agent. God is drawing people. God is moving people. He is working people out of darkness by giving them a new heart. The new heart ensures that they can see and they can savor Christ why is it that one day all of a sudden although you were exposed to the gospel for so many years why all of a sudden one day did the light go off for you why did it just all of a sudden Oh, I get it I need Jesus you were probably told in sermon after sermon that you needed Jesus for years and years and years but you didn't want him you just kept going about your way you didn't want concerned about what happens next You were not concerned necessarily about the wrath of God. It didn't dawn on you that you might be estranged from God. It didn't dawn on you because the wrath of God abides on you, according to the Scriptures. And how can someone be aware of that and still continue in their deadness? And here's the answer. They can't be aware of that. They don't get it. They don't understand it. They don't accept it. They may hear it. They may see it. But it doesn't connect. It doesn't connect. You see, because our coming to Jesus is not out of fear. God's not a fearmonger. God's not saying, you know what? I want you to desire me because you're scared for your life. Yes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a respect issue there. But God presents himself as all lovely and desirable and knowable. God appeals to us with his grace and with his grandeur and with his majesty. And when he replaces that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, When he, as the active agent, draws that passive agent and does all this work, then you can see and savor Christ. Only because of Christ. For it's the gift of God, so that what? No man may boast. Dead hearts cannot see even the richest of truths. So in this text, it's interesting. Jesus has just given this discourse. He's finished his discourse on the bread of life with these complex statements. That, if taken very literally, would really confuse the issue. And some of the disciples were grumbling. They were upset. They were offended. That word grumbling literally means to stumble or to be offended by. And it says, Jesus, knowing their hearts, knowing their grumblings, he says, are you guys offended? Are you offended at these things? Listen to the text. When many of his disciples heard it, this is his whole sermon, by the way. It's, I think it's in reference to his whole sermon. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can listen to this? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Do you take offense at this? Then what, is, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, he says. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. A reference back to John 6, 44. He reiterates that fact. Because what had happened or what's going to happen, you see in the next verse, is that disciples walked away. But he responds immediately at the fact that they were grumbling. They took offense at what he had said. So what does this grumbling mean? And that's the real question you have to ask. What are they grumbling about? What are they upset about? Was it that Jesus is asserting his deity? Was it that Jesus said you must eat my flesh and they took it literally? Was it the fact that Jesus is teaching on the doctrine of election? What is it that they're upset about? And from what I've studied, the commentators say all of the above. They just outright rejected everything. They just took issue with everything. This is Calvin's commentary. This is many, many commentaries. This is what they say is that they just outright rejected everything. They didn't accept his teaching. Scripture tells us why, because they couldn't. They couldn't. They couldn't sit under the words of life and receive and be changed by them unless they were drawn, is what Jesus says. Here's how you understand this flow of context. Unless they were drawn, it doesn't matter what they hear. The gospel is powerful. Don't get me wrong. But the gospel's power comes into play when God activates by regenerating a heart because otherwise they can't see the gospel They can't understand its implications. They can't see why it's a benefit to them. That's what deadness does. That's why I say a dead heart cannot even see the richest of truths. The most explicit, the the clearest, the most potent of truths are lost on them just as those truths were lost on these disciples who we're going to see in just a few verses walk away. They were offended. They refused to accept his teaching. They refused to accept it. They refused. They were offended by the fact that Jesus said these things. Jesus mentions this manna from heaven. He mentions this comment to show them that there is a better bread. Right? He mentions that there was bread that was given to your fathers in the Exodus and they died. This bread's not enough. And I think Jesus mentioned this because he knows the heart of these people, which has been the same trajectory, the same pattern thus far, where what they want is for you to fix a temporary issue and not fix an eternal issue. We want you to fix this problem of hunger. We want you to fix this problem of Roman oppression. We're not so much interested in the problem of our sin, the problem of our separation, the problem of our damnation. We don't really want you to fix that. But that's what Jesus was speaking of. That's what Jesus was fixing. Well, that's what the message taught. Is that Jesus is a better bread? These Jews, these disciples, they were thinking of a physical remedy to their problems, just as God provided a physical uh, remedy for the problem of hunger, affecting the children of Israel during the wilderness years. They were looking on that. Where's, where's that Savior? Where's that God? Where's the God that did this for them? And, and are we not the same way? Do we not look sometimes to our left and to our right and say, God, you, 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 you did this for this person. Why don't you do this for me? God, you healed them of this issue. Why don't you heal me? Why are you treating them differently than you treat me? And, and we, we have to be careful not to miss the point. The point is what we all have in common as followers of Christ, is that what we do have and what God has done equally across the board is that he has rescued all those who believe. He has drawn and rescued, drawn, rescued, given new heart, given new life, brought them into his kingdom. The dead heart will tell you that you need temporal comforts more than you need eternal life. And I would even say, just the, not, even, not just the dead heart, but just your sinful nature will remind you of that. But the dead heart will not allow you to see anything else but that. Until Christ does what? Or God replaces that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. This is why I wholeheartedly subscribe to the doctrine of election. I think it's beautiful, I think it's divine, I think it's logical, I think it's clear. And I just can't see how any other idea is acceptable i was dead i didn't want jesus i couldn't want jesus if i believe the scriptures i cling to that i couldn't understand these things because what first corinthians they are spiritually discerned when jesus says or when paul says in ephesians 2 that you were dead in your trespasses and sins he says you were spiritually dead If you are spiritually dead, that means you have no notion of spiritual life, no desire for spiritual life. You are camped out in your deadness, none the wiser to anything else. That's what a dead heart will do for you. And then Jesus says this. After they grumble, he says, listen, the flesh is of no help. The words I've spoken to you, they are spirit and life. Why does he say this? Why does he say this? So if we're just kind of staying with the context here, okay, so focus. Here's, 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 here's something very important. He says the flesh is of no help to you. And he's trying to explain to these grumbling disciples who are saying, what, 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 do, you, what do you mean literally eat your flesh? What do you mean literally drink your blood? This, this doesn't make sense, and they're really struggling with this, right? And so he says these words. He says, listen, let me be clear with you. The, the, the flesh is of no help to you at all. And Jesus is simply saying, I'm not saying you have to literally eat my flesh or literally drink my blood. Jesus is giving this explanation. That's why I don't understand why Catholicism clings so tightly to transubstantiation. When in this text, it's very clear that Jesus is saying, I'm not speaking in a literal sense of my flesh and my blood. I'm teasing out this metaphor so that you can fully understand that you must do more than admire me. You must have me. I must be in you, abiding in you. And if that happens, you abide in me. He says the flesh is of no help. He wants them to see that their help will not come from a physical bread. Bread was given to the children of Israel, and they died. That's why he makes that point. So he wants them to see that their help will not come from any physical bread, that literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood is not what's in mine. But, and I'm going to quote One one scholar, one commentary on this, because I think he says it so well. It is the spirit and the person of Jesus in the act of giving his body to be broken and his blood to be shed that bestows and sustains life, even everlasting life. Let me read that one more time because I had to read it like 57 times. It is the spirit and the person of Jesus in the act of giving his body to be broken and his blood to be shed that bestows and sustains life, even everlasting life. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. A, when he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and then when he says, it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no help. But despite this explanation, there were still those who would not believe. Do you find this odd? Do you find it odd that these disciples This is more than the 12, by the way, because it comes down to the 12 once these leave here in just a minute. So there were many who were following him. Scripture doesn't tell us how many. Could have been a thousand, could have been two. I don't know. But those who were grumbling, they sat under, at least for a season, the teaching of Jesus. Most likely witnessed miracles. Some miracles recorded in the Gospel of John. Maybe some that were not recorded because you remember John 21 says that the works of Christ cannot be held in all the books in the world. So it's safe to say that maybe they witness some things and yet they still walk away. Jesus explains it to them. Jesus goes from this metaphor to being more specific and says, Listen, you don't literally have to eat my flesh, you don't literally have to drink my blood. The spirit is what does it. My body will be broken. I'm pointing you to the cross. My body will be broken, my blood will be shed. And a sacrifice will be given. You understand the sacrificial system. A sacrifice will be given. And those who put on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. But I, even though I know the answer, it still blows my mind that these disciples saw so much. I, can you imagine what campfire discussion would have been like with Jesus? Not just campfire discussion with Jesus, but in that context, when, when, when they didn't know anything when they were steeped in Judaism and all of a sudden this radical comes up and he starts pitching these new ideas with authority they've never seen, with acumen they've never seen, with accuracy they've never seen. I know that I'm a fantastic preacher. I know that, right? But can you imagine Jesus? You're sitting with Jesus, first century, and every word that drips from his lips is probably completely revolutionary to these guys. And they miss it. Maybe he sat there and said, by the way, that whole in the beginning God thing, that was me. What? I don't know that he said that. But they saw so many things from the master preacher. You don't get more doctrinally sound than Jesus. Dare I say that his Christology was impeccable. And they missed it. They walk away, it says, after this Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many. They saw all these things and they walked away. They sat under the master teacher and yet walked away. Every word that came from his lips was probably revolutionary to them and they walk away. There's no amount of explanation that you can offer to a dead heart that will revive his heart. You give the gospel, I want to be very clear with my words here, because I think it can be a slippery slope if I don't say it the right way. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe, Romans, right? But the only ones who can receive, perceive, accept, understand the gospel are those who God gives a new heart, opens their eyes, enlightens them that they might see, behold, that they may believe and so it should come as a great comfort to you as one who labors and toils for the gospel or at least should it should come as a great comfort to you when you labor with the gospel and you pour out all that you can and some days you think you were clear and some days you think you just butchered it to death and you have people that just reject it over and over and over and over again, William Carey in India for 10 years without a single convert. How do you keep your mind? How do you keep from going insane? How do you keep from utter despair and discouragement? By cleaning, clinging to this truth, until God draws them, until God regenerates a heart, they will not see because they cannot. Deadness renders it impossible to accept even the richest of truths you don't walk away from jesus unless you don't know jesus does it not bring you some comfort to think that if they walked away from jesus they'll walk away from you so don't pout and get hot and bothered when you share the gospel and someone just walks away are you jesus is your soteriology is your christology is your theology so on point that there's no way that they could walk away from that You offer arguments that are so airtight that you think, here it is. There's nothing that they can say. They're stuck. No. They'll walk away if they're not drawn. They'll walk away if the Lord hasn't regenerated their heart. The Scripture says in the book of Acts, those appointed to salvation believe. If you encounter someone with the gospel and their response is, give me Jesus, then you say, praise the Lord. They're appointed to salvation, and it just so happened that God brought me here on the day that they were appointed to repent and believe. That's cool stuff. And then you walk away without any shred of ability to say, look what I did. This was a gift, the gift of faith given so that no man may boast. Not the one who was just saved, nor the one who was the conduit of the gospel. You see, the Bible is serious about keeping the glory in the category of God. I think the walking away of the disciples teaches us several things. I think it reinforces the doctrine of election, which I've, I've talked through. I think, uh, I think again, when we labor to give peop- people the gospel, we want to be careful not to make the mistake of thinking that making a clear enough argument is the reason for the change in someone. If that's our mentality, then every person you witness to that doesn't believe, you will... Believe that it's your fault because you were not clear enough. That's what you will wrestle with in your mind. I'm not saying that's true. I'm not saying that when you witness and someone doesn't believe it's your fault. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there is a risk from a s- certain perspective to fall into that camp, and that's dangerous because then you assume a role that only God has. Your role is what? First Corinthians 3, to plant and to water. What's God's role? To bring the increase. Don't you ever, ever think that you can bring an increase in someone's life because you can't i think watching those disciples who walked away it shows us that we can play the game for a while i think it shows us that we can sit next to someone at work we can even sit next sit next to someone on sunday morning and there's a chance there's the possibility that they play the game for a while and i think when someone goes away from us or goes away from us i think in terms of not leaves Haven Ridge, but someone who walks away from Jesus. The only explanation is they were never of Jesus. By God's grace, may we see the true value in Jesus and lay hold to what we have in him. I think Peter did this. As we close in this last little point, I think it's very important to see where Peter Stepped up here. We know Peter's rap sheet, right? I mean he got out of the boat, but he started sinking. Right? He starts talking to he starts talking to folks uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration and is basically told to shut up. You know, we know Peter cut off the guy's ear and Jesus is like, man, I need to take care of this. Zip zap, puts it back on his face. So Peter's known for saying some things and doing some things. He denied Jesus a few blemishes, but here Peter steps up and he shines. He shines because here's what happens. The rest of the dialogue says that after these left, Jesus turned to the 12 and he says, do you want to go away as well? Are you next? Do you want to leave? I don't know what his demeanor was. I don't know what his posture was towards them. It's just the question. Do you want to leave as well? And Simon Peter answered him. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Whom shall we go? for you have the words of eternal life. I think this is a moment that Peter shines and is such a great example to us. A, that although my life is replete or riddled with failure, that the Lord still, by his grace, allows me to shine in moments where I can be a beacon to others. And Peter does that right here. Are you going to leave as well? And Peter says, where are we going to go? And the sentiment here is not that they're at the bottom of the barrel. The sentiment here is like, well, you know, it's... (laughs) You know, you're not great, but anything else is worse. No, he's saying there's nothing better than you, Christ. You have the words of life. Where else would we want to go other than someone who can impart to us the words of life? Where else would we want to go than other than someone by his words? He can control things. He can command things. He can direct and dictate things. Where else would we go other than to the one that has the words of life, not just the words of life, but the eternal words of, words of life? And Peter says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's a reason that Peter and his message and all of these things were, they stand out when Jesus talks to Peter and says, Peter, your name will be Rock, Tetras, and on this rock I will build my church. The Lord is allowing Peter to shine. And the final thing is this, Jesus is infinitely greater than where our wandering hearts would lead us. Jesus is infinitely greater than where our wandering hearts will lead us. The disciples who turned away did so because they turned to their what? Their feelings. They turned to their intellect. They turned to their understanding. And what happens is when we lean on our feelings and we lean on our emotions and we lean on our intellect or understanding, it misleads us. It lies to us, and it's a hard thing because feelings are strong. Emotions are strong. Intellect is strong. It's hard for us sometimes to get past. I see this, but, but I can't wrap my brain around it, but it seems obvious. It seems clear. We have to embrace it when our feelings, our emotions, everything is saying, no, I'm going to pull you away from this because of your journey, because of your life, because of everything that is trying to ensnare and entangle you is trying to pull you away from those eternal words of life. And it is absolutely imperative that we do as Peter has done and say, where else are we going to go? For you and you alone have the eternal words of life. These disciples who went away, these disciples who turned to their feelings and and their intellect, they did so because their hearts were dead. But are we not, as the saints, prone to do the same thing? Are the scriptures not filled with examples of men like Peter who clung more tightly to the world than they did to Jesus? We get rattled by the events of life, and we are shaken off of our pedestal of truth. And instead of mounting back up, we turn away. And this idea came to mind of a a pedestal, not that we're lofty or not that we're high and mighty, but a pedestal is here. Lots of things that can bump it we want to cling to it for dear life because that's where truth is and everything's all around it that can create struggle for us that can create turmoil or difficulty for us but it's so important that we stay on that pedestal of truth and we cling to the eternal words of life what is the answer for when the tumultuous events of life labor to push you away from truth I think the answer is that you push even harder towards truth because Jesus has the eternal words of life there is a better bread not that the bread not the bread that temporarily satisfied the multitude not the bread that met the momentary needs of the wandering Israelites but this bread is Jesus because of Jesus we have no need for anything else we have no reason to go anywhere else because his words are the eternal words of life jesus is better so cling to him cling to his word let's pray and we'll be dismissed father may your words resonate in our hearts and in our minds may they stir up genuine affection for christ jesus lord may they compel us forward